uh, this morning. We are um, doing Open Here, which is, if you're newer with us, um, it's this plan, this quest that we set out to, to go on in January to establish a habit of reading the Bible every day, um, reading a small part, a chunk of that. And, um, and so we've been in doing Open Here now for almost five and a half months. I and mean, when we hit June, it's hard to believe we're already at June, we'll be doing this for six months. And so the question that I have for you is, um, is anyone feeling uh, guilty or depressed uh, because you haven't stuck with it yet? <laughs> if that's, okay, I see some hands out there. And I just want to say right now, um, just knock it off, stop it. Uh, because the whole point of doing this is that we would find life and joy in God's word. And, uh, and I know that sometimes if we, we set goals and then, you know, you have a crazy week or a crazy month or a crazy six months and then you've stopped doing this, um, A, that's okay. Uh, if this is not the right thing for you at this time, just feel no guilt about just setting it aside. Um, but if you're saying, yeah, no, I really do want to do this, or maybe you're newer and you just heard about this and you say, yeah, I want to jump in. This is a perfect time because we've finished the historical books and we're about to jump into a whole new section of scripture uh, called poetry or wisdom. And this is a whole new kind of genre. And so I think for some of you, it's going to be a welcome relief moving away from some of the historical uh, narratives that we've been reading. Um, for others of you, you could be thinking, okay, poetry, great. Um, I'm not very artsy. I don't really get poetry. So you're saying the next five weeks we're going to be reading poetry. I don't know if I'm super excited about that. And actually, that was my attitude toward uh, poetry all through high school. Because um, really, growing up and into high school, my attitude toward poetry was either it was something that was silly, um, like this Christmas card my dad would always quote. He got this Christmas card one year. He loved it. It was this, uh, you know, the quote that, that roses are reddish, violets are bluish, and if it weren't for Christmas, we'd all be Jewish. He loved quoting that. Um, so poetry was either something silly like that, or it was something totally incomprehensible. I, I still have this memory of sitting in my room as a junior hire, reading these haikus that we were assigned to read, and then just going completely over my head. I was like, these three lines, what's, what's this haiku? I didn't, I didn't get it at all. But in high school, I encountered Richard Lovelace's poem uh, called To Lacosta Going to Wars. It's a famous poem. Probably everyone read it at some point in, in high school literature class. But for me, it was the first time I connected with a poem. When I read it, I I felt something. It moved me. And even though it was probably 15, almost 16 years ago, I just had a birthday here, 16 years ago that I read that poem, I still remember, I mean, I can remember sitting at my desk and reading this poem and and vividly even still have the, the final lines of that poem etched in my mind, which are, I could not love thee dear so much, loved I not honor more. I could not love thee dear so much, loved I not honor more. And the themes of this poem were of these rightly ordered loves and of courage and kind of the courtly ideals. And they just, something as a 16-year-old high school student, they just struck a deep chord within me. And Richard Lovelace, along with the other medical, metaphysical poets like John Donne and George Herbert and John Milton, they opened up a new world to me as a high school student, of what poetry could be and how it could move you. And and today, certainly, I don't want to give the impression I'm not a poetry buff. I don't read poetry often. But if I do, I usually gravitate toward John Donne or George Herbert or John Milton. Um, So poetry has this unique power both to mystify us and to frustrate us. But it's also able to move and fulfill us in the way that no other type of literature, no other genre of writing can. And I think part of the reason this is is that poetry seeks not only to report what the author was experienced, but actually to recreate 
what the author was experiencing in the reader. That's one of the unique facets of poetry. It doesn't just report what was happening, but it actually, through words, tries to recreate the experience of the author and the reader. It's rich in imagery and metaphor, simile. And also, depending on the culture and language, poetry looks very different. It feels very different. For example, if you have a Japanese haiku, which is really short and concise compared to John Milton's Paradise Lost, which is this long, epic thing, they're both poetry, but they're very different. And when we come to poetry in the Bible, the same is also true. For example, in English, uh, poetry is often characterized by sort of rhythm and rhyme. So you have one, two, buckle my shoe, right? You sort of have the sense of rhythm and some rhyming in English. However, poetry in Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament is written in, is the most frequently characterized by a literary device called parallelism. And this is where the first uh, phrase is followed by another phrase that sort of restates and reiterates what the first phrase had stated. So, for example, a classic picture of parallelism is in Psalm 19, verse 1, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, that's the first line, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Sky and heaven, glory of God, handiwork. You see they're in parallel. Poetry and wisdom literature, they don't present this sort of abstract philosophical theology. Rather, they have a very concrete, relational theology and its experience in life. One author puts it this way, says, Poetry speaks to the mind through the heart. I think that's why so many of us gravitate towards the Psalms. We love the Psalms because they speak to the mind through the heart. But the poetry and wisdom literature, they're different than other types of literature in the Bible. They have to be taken in slowly and savored. I think too often we approach the Psalms like Welch's grape juice when really we should be treating them like a fine wine. You know, we just sort of guzzle them down when really we should take time to pause and savor and sort of swirl them around in our tongue and taste every nuance and layer of flavor. So this morning as we come to Psalm chapter 1, we want to slow down. We want to sip and savor. And this morning I have uh, an outline that I want to put up uh, on there. This is a little different than how I do my outlines. I actually drew this, so if you have a hard time reading it, I know the font's a little bit small and it's my handwriting, so it's not always the clearest. But I wanted to map out the psalm for you in this way, and I'll kind of be highlighting things as we go along. But as we look at Psalm chapter 1, this is sort of the flow of it. It presents these two ways, two paths. And really this idea of there being two ways or two paths is the whole message of all of the psalms, of all of the wisdom literature of the Bible. And so as we look at the psalm, be looking for those two ways, those two paths. In fact, I just want to read it again. We're just going to soak ourselves in Psalm 1 this morning. So I want you to listen again as we read Psalm 1 and listen for the two ways. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's two ways, the psalmist says. The one way is pictured as being a tree. 
The other way is pictured as being a chaff, which we'll get to in a bit. What is, what is this chaff? There's a flourishing way, that's what it says at the top, flourishing way, how to be a tree, and there's a withering way, how to be chaff. These are the two ways that are presented to us in the psalm. So in other words, this psalm tells us how to be a tree or how to be chaff. But we all want to be the tree, right? I mean, as we read through this, the tree seems like the thing in the psalm you want to be. So how do we be the tree? I mean, the message of the psalm is be the tree. Be like the tree. That's the big idea here. Be the tree. And in Psalm 1, we see that trees need soil, that trees bear fruit, and that trees endure. Trees need soil, trees bear fruit, and trees endure. That's what's kind of going up the top side there. First, we see that trees need soil. And and I was going to actually have an object lesson here, um, but the object lesson died. And so I don't have it with me. Um, The object lesson was I dug up a little sapling uh, out of my brother-in-law's yard, and I was going to put it in a little cup and say, you know, trees need soil. But I didn't get it into the soil fast enough. I just kept it in water, and it died, so it's dead on my counter this morning. But it just shows that trees really do need soil. Water is not enough for them. They will die on your kitchen counter if you don't get them in the dirt quickly enough. So trees need soil. If they're going to live, they need soil. Not just water, not just light, they need the right soil. And so in this imagery of the poem, as we look at this, we need soil in our own lives. And what is the soil that leads to a life of flourishing, that leads to a tree that bears fruit, that endures? The question for us is what sort of soil do we need to be planted in? To live the kind of life that the author says in verse 1 there is, is blessed, So verse 1 reads, blessed is the man, or you could translate it, happy is the one. This applies to all people, not just to to men. The the concept of blessedness or happiness is simply this. So blessing isn't the idea um, that we often think of. I mean, blessing, I guess I should say this. We don't often use the word blessing in our, in our sort of normal day-to-day lives. I don't, at least. Um, and I'm a pastor. Um, but we don't usually walk around saying to people, blessed, or how blessed you are, or blessings. Um, maybe if you grew up in a more liturgical tradition, I went to an Anglican church for a while, the language of blessing was a lot more common there. But what does blessing really mean? Well, blessing, I think, is simply this. It's the good life as God designed it. When we're experiencing the goodness of life as God designed it, we're experiencing his blessing. Blessing is the joy, the pervasive sense of well-being that one experiences as we live life according to God's design as revealed in his word. Blessedness is little patches of Eden springing up in the middle of a sin-marred world. I love this. One scholar defined blessedness. This is blessedness is a life that takes real pleasure in living according to God's will. Blessing or blessedness is a life that takes real pleasure in living according to God's will. So the sure way not to experience that sort of blessing, the psalmist says, is to plant yourself in the soil of the crowd. This crowd that is walking and then standing and then sitting in the way of sinners and scoffers and the wicked. And notice that progression in the psalm. You move from a place of walking along to then slowing down to stand and then finally to sitting. And I love how uh, D.A. Carson explains this. He says, this person begins by walking in the counsel of the wicked. That is, he picks up the advice, the perspectives, the values, the worldview of the ungodly. And if he does this long enough, 
he sinks to the next level. He stands in the way of sinners. And the translation there gives kind of the wrong impression because in English, to stand in someone's way is to block them or hinder them. But in Hebrew, this picture is standing in someone's way is to sort of stand in their shoes, to put on their shoes, to live life as they live it. So to do what they do, to adopt their lifestyle, their habits, their patterns of conduct. And if he pursues this course long enough, he's likely to descend into the abyss, to the seat of mockers. He not only participates in much that is godless, but sneers at those who don't. So there's this progression of walking to standing, finally to sitting. That's the way not to flourish. That's the way down to being chaff. In contrast, those who experience blessing, this life as God intended it to be, are those who are trees that are planted in this good soil. Those who are planted in the soil of God's word. And we see this in verse 2. It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Again, there's that sort of parallelism, that picture of, of this delight and meditating being parallel to one another. Meditation here is different than the sort of meditation I think we often think of in kind of a New Age spirituality. When we think of meditation today, I think sometimes we can think of, of someone just sort of emptying their mind or, or um, kind of chanting something over and over uh, to themselves. But the picture here is different. The word translated meditate here carries the idea of, of murmuring or muttering, kind of repeating a section of God's word over and over again. It's the regular repetition of God's word to oneself. And remember, when the time when the Psalms were being written, and many of them were songs, right? They were actually sung. They had music to them. They didn't have printing presses, and they had certainly written language, but not the ability for everyone. Very few people had access to sort of a written portion of God's word. And so meditation, memory, was the way that if you wanted God's word, the way that you got it was to repeat it over and over and over again to yourself. In fact, so much of the narrative of the Old Testament and the ways that Psalms are constructed are designed to aid memory. Because the way that, the, that you had God's word, the way that you could reflect on God's word in that time was you had to memorize it. You couldn't sort of open up the Bible app on your phone and look up a verse. The only way you had it was to memorize it, to repeat it over and over again. So when this language of, of meditating, think of this sort of murmuring, this repetition, this muttering kind of almost under your breath over and over and over again. And not just to have rote memory, but meditation always has this idea too of gaining greater insight into God and his word. So in sort of a, a new age spirituality, the goal of meditation is actually to empty one's mind, but the goal of biblical meditation is to fill one's mind with thoughts of God and his word. So, so what is meditation on, delighting in God's word? What does that look like for you and me today? Well, I think the first thing we need to recognize is that everyone meditates. I mean, you are meditating. I mean, the question is not if you're meditating, but what are you meditating on? What is constantly running through your mind? What are you thinking on over and over again? And this is where we really begin to see the connection as well between delighting and meditating, because what we delight on, what we delight in, what we take joy in, what we gain pleasure in, those are the things that we inevitably end up meditating on. I was, when Rachel and I were on vacation, I recently reread uh, one of my all-time favorite C.S. Lewis books, Till We Have Faces. I think it's his masterpiece of fiction. And it's such a powerful book, and I, I love it so much as delight in it. And so I couldn't help 
after I read it, just to keep mulling it over in my mind, to kind of be repeating phrases or or thinking about scenes in the book. What we delight in and we inevitably meditate on. What we delight in, we inevitably meditate on. So you're always thinking of something. The question is, what are you thinking on? And we need to be aware of what's shaping our hearts, what's shaping our minds. So the question for us is, who do we listen to? And how are we listening? And both of those questions are important. Who or or what are we listening to? And and how are we listening? So first, who do you listen to? Who are you walking with? Who are you standing with? Who are you sitting with? Where are you planting yourself? With those who are pursuing God's design? Or with those who are abandoning his design? Now, does this mean that we should separate ourselves from those, anyone who's not a Christian or who doesn't go to our church? Of course not. That's not at all the message of this psalm. But the question is, is where are our roots? Not who are we with, but where are our roots? If your roots are in good soil, then you can be with all kinds of different people. When you look at Jesus, he spent times with all kinds of different people who were considered outcasts, unacceptable, sinners. But where was he rooted? He was rooted in this relationship with the Father and in God's word. So it isn't a question of, of who we spend our time with, but where, who's influencing us? Where are we rooted? We are called to be a faithful presence in a good but fallen world. And the psalmist's point is that where we are planted makes all the difference. So who are you listening to? Who's shaping you? But we also need to consider how are we listening. Not just who are we listening to, but how are we listening to. Um, About five years ago, Nicholas Carr wrote an essay that was published in The Atlantic um, called, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Um, And he recently has continued work on this theme. He's got a great book called The Shallows. Um, And in this article, he has this great quote. it's, It's sobering words. He says, What the internet is doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration in contemplation. My mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in swiftly moving particles. And this is the line that just grabs me every time I read it. He says, once I was a scuba diver in a sea of words, and now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Once I was a scuba diver in a sea of words, and now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. How are we listening You see, meditation, this kind of repetition and thinking through God's word, absorbing it into our lives, isn't compatible with multitasking. It requires the fullness of our attention. And so do you have space? Do you have margin in your life to listen, to read God's word, to to just slow down? And I love that picture of, of scuba diving in a psalm, in the sea of words. I'm guilty of this. We all, I think, our, our lives are so fast-paced, it's so easy to just skim over the top on that jet ski. But do we allow ourselves space and time to sink into that sea of words? How are we listening? Are we savoring it like wine? Or are we chugging it like Welch's? You know, every week um, we have a conversation starter in the welcome fold that you're given on the back. That's a, that's a great point into, or a great um, point of entry into meditation with other people or as an individual. Um, also, every week on our website, if you go to the open here section, um, as a family, if you have kids, uh, students, there's a family guide that has scripture memory. It has activities to help you be able to bring 
God's word into your life. So I would encourage you to check out both those things, the conversation starter and the family guides. Um, we have teams of people each week who, who think through the text of scripture. They always relate to what we're reading, what we're teaching on. Help us to bring it in. Um, as we meditate and memorize God's word, it trains us, it shapes us, and it trains, helps us train off the spots so that we'll be ready on the spot. That was the Dallas word phrase. I love that. We need to train off the spots so that we'll be ready on the spot. And scripture memory helps us with that. This meditation discipline re- requires um, discipline, but it pays off. It pays off. I often think of when, I, when I'm struggling with scripture memory, which is not something I do well, um, of the silver chair, which is, again, one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And in the silver chair, at the beginning of the book, um, Aslan, the lion, the kind of the hero of the story, he comes to this girl, Jill Pole, and he gives her four signs. And she has to memorize these signs because if she's going to go into Narnia and help rescue this lost prince, she has to know the four signs. That's going to be the key in order to find this lost prince. And he says to her, he says, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you awake in the morning and when you lie down at night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. But as you read through the silver chair, as she and her companion, they get caught up in the difficulties and the circumstances they face, and she begins to forget the signs. And Lewis writes, Soon they never talked about Aslan, and even lost, or even the lost prince, And Jill gave up her habit of repeating the signs over to herself every night and morning. She said at first she was too tired, but soon she forgot all about it. Man, I've been there. At first, I'm just too tired for this. And then I just forget about it altogether. So who are we listening to? How are we listening? Second, we see that not only do trees bear, uh, need good soil, they also bear fruit. That's one of the next things. So they need good soil, but they also bear fruit. This is what we see in the next section of the psalm. So let's just read again from the beginning uh, to verse 4. It says, uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. So stanza two in the psalm, the second set of verses here, it's all about a fruitful tree and being compared with the exact opposite, this fruitless chaff. But let's talk about the tree first. In the Middle East, uh, which is where the psalmist lived, um, trees are, are rare, depending on what part you're at, because much of the Middle East is, is an arid desert kind of climate, right? And one of the things, my favorite things about our neighborhood here in Kansas City is all the trees. I love driving through Brookside, through Mission Hills, and just the trees that are everywhere. Uh, in fact, I was coming back from a graduation party yesterday, driving down Ward Parkway, and I was just stunned. It was a beautiful day, and there's just this canopy of trees um, that you see driving down Ward Parkway. I love it. It's one of my favorite things um, about Kansas City, about this part of our city. But when you go to other parts of the country, when Rachel and I are on vacation in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, there aren't trees anywhere unless they're on a golf course being watered constantly. If you go out into the true climate of Phoenix or uh, Scottsdale that hasn't been sort of um, domesticated, it's just gravel and dirt and cactus. I mean, that's all that it is. And so a tree in the desert is a rare thing. It's a precious thing. 
And the one who delights in God's word is not just a tree. He's not just a tree. He's a tree in the desert. But he's a tree that's planted by a stream of water, an oasis. There the soil is always fertile. It's always full of water, full of life. And this book is a constant stream of living water. With roots here in God's word, our tree of our lives will always bear fruit in its season. And this isn't sort of like a bargain we make with God where we say, okay, if God, if I'm doing this, if I'm obeying your word, if I'm constantly reading it, then you are sort of obligated then to bless me and prosper me. No, it's more like if you do this, if you're in God's word, if it's nurturing you, if it's nourishing you, then this kind of stuff is inevitable. A life that's rooted in God's word will make good decisions. A life that's rooted and shaped by God's word works hard. It loves plentifully. It gives generously. And what a life is happier than that. And it's not that that life is always easy for this tree either. If you turn to the prophet of Jeremiah, I'm not asking you to to turn there now, but if, if you were to read over in Jeremiah 17... Jeremiah writes, he echoes the psalm almost exactly. He said, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends its root out into the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You see, this tree, it's in the desert. The heat comes, the drought is a reality, and yet because it's planted near the stream of water, it remains green. It remains standing firm. And children and students who are here, I mean, think about this. The rules that your parents give you, the guidelines that they set up, they are for your good, for your flourishing. It's because they want you to be like the tree. When we obey, we flourish. When we don't, well, the psalmist says, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. And I don't think chaff is something we often deal much with because uh, we're not living in an agricultural setting. But if you take wheat, this is an actual little piece of wheat here. And in farming, what they would do is they would separate the husk, this chaff, from the wheat berry. And what you have left over is just this kind of waste. And so if you rub, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a little bit of a mess here. But if you rub this to remove the chaff, what you blow away is the chaff. And I've got a few wheat berries here in my hand. But that, that just blows away. That's the chaff. And the wind just blows it away. So we have this option of being this chaff that just kind of puffs and blows away and fades and it's just waste. To being this tree that's planted by a stream of water. So do we flourish like a tree? Are we bearing fruit? And by fruit, I mean what makes us different as followers of Jesus? Is there anything that we can point to in our lives and say, this I do out of obedience to Christ? So trees have roots. They bear fruit. And third, we see that trees endure. The trees endure. And I want us to read this entire psalm again, and I'm going to have it up on the screens for us. I want us to read it together again. I just want us to soak in this psalm. So let's read this aloud together one more time. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will not make it to the gathering of the righteous. The wicked, uh, both their path and themselves, they will perish. Um, Psalm, or Proverbs 14, 12 says that there are many ways that seem right to a man, but its end is death. And, and if, if this is your life, that death and judgment is the inevitable end of this life that seeks away from God's design. But a trees endure. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The idea there is him watching over, caring, protecting. Sort of like the sun shining down on the tree. So the question here is where are you headed? Are you living with the end in mind? Every one of us is moving towards death physically. I mean, every one of us will die. That's one of our certainties in life. Are you living with the end in mind? What will you be remembered for? Will it all have been worth it? Will you endure? You see, the reality, however we answer these questions, is that we all fall short. And and I think in in most of us, in our most honest moments, at least I know I would say, that, that I'm most likely in my honest moments to say, I am dangerously close to being like this chaff rather than being like a tree that endures. But the good news is this, that Jesus carried his tree so that we can become the trees that we're called to be. You see, the law, God's law, apart from Christ, it is a curse. Paul writes in Galatians 3, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by coming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, Jesus became the chaff for us. He was the one who was swept away in judgment on your behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might stand in the congregation of the righteous, clothed in his righteousness. When God sees us, we who have faith in Jesus, he sees a beautiful forest with Jesus our Savior as the tallest tree because Jesus... Because of Jesus, God restores us and he calls his people, Isaiah says this, oaks of righteousness planted in the Lord that he may be glorified. Look around at all of us. We are a beautiful forest that God is making. Some of us are saplings, some of us are tall trees, young and old, but we are a forest How happy and how blessed are we. Entrust yourself to the one who hung on a tree for you. And be the tree that bears fruit and endures. Every week, uh, for the most part here at Christ Community, we celebrate communion together as a reminder 
of the good news that we are planted by a stream of living water, a stream that is, that is fed by the very life of Christ. And uh, you don't have to be a member here at Christ Community to participate in, uh, in communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you uh, consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you are welcome at his table. Uh, and if you're not there yet, if you're still wrestling through what it means to be a Christian or what it means to follow Christ, this is a moment where you, you don't have to come uh, forward. Please uh, feel free to remain seated um, and participate in just by praying to yourself. And when you come, come in groups of four or five and uh, just gather around uh, the table, um, take uh, communion together and uh, take the bread, dip it in the cup. And there's four communion stations around the room. There's two in the back and two up front. This one in the back also has gluten-free communion elements available if that's something that you need. And when you go to receive communion, it tends to work best if you uh, come out these outside aisles and then return to uh, your pew uh, in the center aisle. And especially if you're a first-time guest with us, you've probably noticed these pews are a little smaller. Uh, The space between them is not great. And so if you have to kind of climb over someone getting in or out of your seat, that's totally okay. We're used to it. We're used to bumping into one another a little bit during this process. Um, So feel free to do that. And, And take your time as you come to the communion table, as you taste and touch and see the good news. Savor it. This is Christ's sacrifice for you. Remember it. Enjoy it. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have given us your word both your written word, but even more supremely your living word, Jesus, who if we plant ourselves in his life, we will be a tree that endures. So I pray now as we come to communion that you would refresh us with your grace, with the knowledge of your goodness and your mercy to us. Amen. Come now to the Lord's table.